Dear Heavenly Father, we stand in your love today. Help us to lean on you with all our troubles, all our trials, all the fear that we go through. Be with Alex as he speaks. We give this day to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Open up your Bibles or your apps to Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Today we're continuing our series in the book of Matthew, starting in Matthew 3, verse 13. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me? And Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented, and as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment the skies were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from the sky said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. So after you read a passage like this, uh, something I try to always do is ask questions of the text. What kind of questions do you have after you read a passage like this? You have a, yeah, go and shout it out. Yeah, like, did it really happen? Like, did it, was this kind of like an, a, you know, a, a more stylistic version of what happened? Was it really a voice shouting from heaven? Did this actually happen like this? What other questions? You have other questions? <laughs> Maybe you don't. That's okay. Uh, the question for me, I certainly was like, did this really happen? That's a good question. Um, but I was like, why is Jesus getting baptized? Like, what a weird thing. Like last week, I went on and on about how John was saying baptism was about repentance, about changing your allegiance from the old kingdom to the new kingdom, and then the king shows up, and he gets baptized too. That's weird, right? Like that doesn't seem to fit the narrative. So what's going on here? And that seemed to be John's question too. Um, after all, John kept telling people, change allegiances, enter into the new kingdom by swearing allegiance to the coming king by being baptized. Now the king shows up and he's like, I need baptized too, just like the ordinary people. Now in Matthew 3, 11, what we talked about last week, John the Baptist had said, the coming king is greater than me. I'm a nobody compared to him. I don't even deserve to carry his shoes. Um, in Luke and John, they record that John says that he's unworthy to even untie Jesus' shoes. He's like, I'm the lowest of the low. I don't even deserve to touch the king's feet. In some small way, Jesus coming to John was saying, where you see yourself as unworthy, I say you're worthy. When Jesus shows up, the unworthy become worthy. He says, you don't think you're good enough to even touch my shoes? I'm going to give you the privilege and the honor of baptizing me. And that's the kind of king that Jesus is. When we feel unqualified, he equips us. When we feel like failures, he somehow brings victory. Jesus takes the unworthy, the seemingly useless, the ordinary, the easily forgotten, and makes them important parts of his kingdom. A little bit later on, when Jesus gives his Sermon on the Mount, his manifesto for the kingdom, he's going to start off by saying, these are the kind of kingdom people I'm looking for. The poor, the wretched, the, the humiliated, the crushed, the broken, the lonely, the isolated. And he lists all these people that normal people wouldn't pick. Remember playing games in school and you're like picking teams? I was always the kid picked last because I was fat and slow. And it's just true. Like they were like, I don't want Alex. I also drop things a lot, 
because I forget I'm holding things. And so we moved one of the pieces of art out of here this morning because it's, it's $10,000. And so my boss has like threatened me over and over again, like, do not break this piece, do not break this piece. So I'm like, you know, we're just gonna lock that in a back closet. So as I was carrying it back to the back closet this morning, Darby's like, remember you're holding something. Remember you're holding something. She's just like whispering along the whole time because I like start getting in my own world and I forget, oh yeah, we were playing a game and I dropped the ball, literally. Um, but these are the kind of people that Jesus looks for. But still, that doesn't give me a good satisfying answer for why be baptized. John asked, like, shouldn't you be doing this to me? Like, why are you asking me to do this? And Jesus says, his answer is, he needs to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now, when we think of righteousness, we usually think of doing moral deeds. We're like, that's righteousness, doing moral deeds. But often the Bible describes righteousness as being in right relationship with someone. Righteousness is not always just doing moral deeds. It's being in the right relationship with someone, being in the right standing with someone else. So Jesus says that this action is a necessary step to be in right relationship with someone. Who? Is it his father? It doesn't seem that way because later on in his ministry, Jesus will explain, I and the father are one. Like, we can't be out of harmony. We're always in harmony. We live in a community of unity and love. I think that he's doing this to be in right relationship between a king and his people. He says, I'm doing this so that I'm the right kind of king for my followers, for the people I'm inviting into my kingdom. Um, the first century Jews were really used to bad kings. That's all they had was a long line of bad kings, both Jewish kings and then puppet kings who worked for the Roman government. And they were used to cruel kings who were like, the same laws that apply to you don't apply to me. And we're used to this in depictions of kings, right? Kings are just like, whatever I say goes, I'm not bound by the law. I can do whatever I want. Even Israel's best king, King David, thought that he could murder a guy and steal Uriah's wife because he's king. He can just do whatever he wants. Jesus was revealing that he was a different kind of king. Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't done first. Jesus is never going to ask you to do something that he hasn't also done, he hasn't also experienced. He's not going to ask you to do something that he's not willing to stoop down and do too. He wasn't asking us to do things for him. He was going to be a king who did things for us. Now, the New Testament writers develop a tri-identity for Jesus in the New Testament. They um, ultimately make this threefold statement about Jesus, that Jesus is prophet, that Jesus is priest, and that he is king. These are the three voices we see in the Old Testament, and they say all three of these categories of voice come together in one person, the God King Jesus. In Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, for example, uh, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. What's that faith? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted and tested in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is a priest. He's not just our king, he's our priest. That means he's actively working and fighting and um, he's uh, working for our good. 
Now, as priest, our king never leaves us alone to go through pain and doubt alone. He knows what it feels like to suffer and walks through it with us. You and I have a king who doesn't say, hey, go do this, hope it turns out okay. He goes with us. He'll walk even through the shadow of death with us. He doesn't just welcome us into the kingdom of God at the end of life. He journeys with us every step of the way through our life. If we have to go through deep waters, he swims alongside us. If we have to climb uh, high mountains, he climbs alongside us. If we have to suffer loss and doubt and defeat and loneliness, Jesus suffers with us. That's the kind of king he so, Jesus is submerged in the waters here, and as soon as he breaks the top of the waters, we have this really unusual moment. The Father, Son, and the Spirit are all three present in this moment. And this is pretty rare. We don't see all three um, persons of the Trinity show up at the same moment very often. And I think this moment must be important because it's recorded in all four of the Gospels. Jesus' birth is only mentioned in two. We have a Christmas time, right? Like, and we're going on and on about it. Only two of the gospel writers even are like, that's worth mentioning. Like, the other two are like, nope, not part of the really big story that I want to tell. But they all mention this. All four think this moment matters. Now, the term Trinity never appears in the Bible. Occasionally, you'll be online or maybe talking to a friend, and they'll be like, Trinity isn't even biblical. Well, just because the word isn't in the Bible doesn't mean that the concept isn't in the Bible. Um, the word Trinity is a Latin term. It essentially means a tri-unity, a three-unity. In an attempt to define the undefinable, they came up with this term, Trinity. For 2,000 years, Christianity has struggled how to put together a clear definition of what it means for our God to be three distinct persons, but one God. Christian confessions of faith throughout time and history usually spend more time talking about what Trinity uh, isn't than what Trinity is, because it's really hard to try to put into words what it is. But they've clearly defined, like, well, it's not that, and it's not that, and it's not that. We have a hard time putting words around it, but it's not those things. Here's some of the things that Christian tradition has said the Trinity is not. God is not a being who takes three different forms. Like, he's not like, sometimes I show up as spirit, sometimes I show up as son, sometimes I show up as father. God is not the combina combination of three different parts. Like, when you put father, son, and spirit all together, it makes this. Like, if you put the right Lego pieces together, you get God. God is not three gods working together in cooperation. Yahweh is one. Father, son, and spirit, one. How does one plus one plus one equal one? I don't know. Uh, this is a mystery. And as much as I like finding simple answers, like if I really wanted to define everything I do with theology, I try to take really complex things and I say, how can we say those as simply as possible? Like how can we take a complex idea and say it simply? I love finding simple answers. I love finding the simple way to define something and boil it down. As I grow older, though, I'm becoming comfortable with mysteries. Sometimes God doesn't give me good answers. And sometimes he doesn't give me good answers to theological questions, and sometimes he doesn't give me good answers to what I'm going through, and what I'm suffering, and what I've lost. And sometimes I'm like, please just tell me, why did I have to go through that? Why did I have to suffer that? Why did I have to endure that? Why can't I have this thing that I want? It's good, I desire it, I beg of you. And sometimes he's just quiet, and there's no answer. And I either have to say, well, I'm done with everything, 
or I have to come to terms with sometimes there's a mystery that he wants me to sit in for a while. Stephen King said, the unanswered mystery is what stays with us the longest. It's what we'll remember in the end. Can you think back to like a moment in a movie that didn't give you a satisfying answer and at the end you're like, what the heck? And you still think about that movie. Um, Darby and I just watched back through the, the comedy show Community and uh, there's this one episode where they, they play off a of law and order and they're trying to crack down, uh, uh, track down this criminal uh, who creeps dropping quarters down people's pants. Yeah, it's a really high, you know, this is a classy show right here. Um, and so at the end, they show you like eight people who could have been the, the bandit. And then they're just like, that's it. And so people on message boards, even today, like 10 years after this show has gone off the air, you know, I got on the message boards after we watched the episode, and people are still debating, like, oh, it could have been Britta. It could have been, you know, the dean. It could have been this and this and this and this person. There's something about a mystery that stays with us. It lingers in our minds. And maybe that's the point. Given it enough time, I am quite confident that humans are going to figure out what's the deal with dark matter. I feel like they're going to figure out black holes and interstellar travel. Um, but at the end of all knowledge, the mystery that will always linger in our hearts and minds is God. And perhaps that's not a mistake or an accident. Maybe that's by design. Maybe there's parts of him that are so deep and mysterious, and he wants it that way. The symbolism on display in this baptism, though, is also echoing back to the book of Genesis, as so many things in the book of Matthew have as we've worked through it. In Genesis 1, uh, the Spirit of God hovers over the waters before creation, and here the Spirit hovers over the waters before creating a new line of human who would follow in Jesus' footsteps. Jesus himself is in the waters. Now, in ancient cultures, their views of creation myths, whether you look at Babylonian, Egyptian, Israelite, all these um, ancient creation myths always started the same way, with the chaotic waters. And the Egyptians are like, this god raised up out of the waters, or the Babylonians are like, something like collided with the waters and created this. Or in the case of the Israelites, the spirit of God hovered over the waters and calmed them. But they all start with this picture of chaotic Waters And in this image here in Matthew, Jesus himself is in the waters. Um, Jesus wades into the chaos to bring order, just like he did being born into the kingdom of chaos to bring about a kingdom of love. And the spirit takes the form of a dove here, which is another reference to Genesis. Like any of the, uh, the people there who have studied and spent their whole life reading the Old Testament would immediately think of another story about water, Noah and the flood. And at the, uh, he's in the boat, and he sends out this dove, and it returns with an olive branch, which became a symbol of peace and restoration, a sign that the waters were, were um, receding, and the new world was appearing from the waters. And when we're baptized, we follow Jesus out of the kingdom of chaos into the kingdom that is rising out of the waters, the kingdom of our God and our King. And finally, God himself, the Father, speaks. And the father has been silent at this point in Israel's history for 400 years. The last time someone stood up and said, this is the word of God, or the last time they had God speak to them was 400 years earlier. For 400 years, God has been quiet, and now he speaks. And the first words he says after 400 years of silence is not, boy, you guys suck. Like, you guys have messed up so bad. I should send some plagues on you or some destruction. You guys are terrible. That's not his first message. His first message is, 
It's a boy. Like, I, this is my son. And I love him. And I delight in him. Like, so often we have a picture of God that God is such an old sourpuss. And he is just miserable all the time. And he just can't wait to, like, beat people up and tell, talk about how messed up they are. God is a being full of love. In 1 John it says, God is love. What God does best, what he loves to do is love people. When God is silent for 400 years and he speaks, the first thing he has to say is, I love my son. Here's my son and I love him. And this quote, what he says here is actually a quote from Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. And rather than just like giving you a quick snap of it, I'm going to read all of Psalm 2. It's not very long. And a couple verses from Isaiah 42. And I just want you to sit and meditate on these. Like the Israelite people had these for hundreds of years. And they were reading these passages looking forward to the coming king. And now Jesus is baptized. And what does God say? He quotes from two passages that talk about the coming king. Psalms 2, it says this. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break off the chains of their governance. Let's throw off their shackles. They can't roll us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger. He terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. You are my son and I am your father. There's the quote. Verse 8, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break those who oppose you with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, the current kingdom, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his coming rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry. And your way will lead to your own destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. But those who take refuge in him will find that they are blessed. In Isaiah 42, it says this, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I love and I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Like a reed, he will be bruised, but he will not break. Like a smoldering wick of a candle, he will flicker, but he will not be snuffed out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on every inch of the earth. In his teaching, the most distant people will put their hope. And this is what Yahweh says, the creator of the heavens who stretches out the galaxies, who spreads out the earth and all that springs from it, who gives breath to all people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and I will make you. It will be a promise for all the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeons those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things are passing away. The new things I declare to you before they even spring into being, I announce them to you. By quoting these two Old Testament promises of a coming king, God the Father was making it clear to those on the riverbank that this was the promised king they had been waiting for. He's like, you've been reading these passages for years and years and years. 
And now this is him. This is it. This is the promised king. This wasn't a servant that God sent. It wasn't an angel. This was just like some guy that he's like, okay, here you go. This was God himself come to rule and reign as king. Now, this passage is unique because all three members of the Trinity show up. But you know, every day in our life, all three members of the Trinity are at work in us and through us and around us all the time. God the Son walks with you through the hardest moments of your life. He intercedes for you because he isn't merely your king. He is also your priest. He takes your case before the Father, arguing for your good. God the Spirit fills the followers of Jesus. He baptizes us with fire, empowering us to live and love like Jesus, to shake spiritual strongholds and raise the kingdom of God out of the kingdom of chaos everywhere we walk, everywhere we go. God the Father looks down on us and he says, I love you. He no longer sees our crimes against his creation. He sees in us his son. He says we are co-heirs with Jesus, destined to rule and reign with him. You're never alone because of the son. You are supernaturally powerful because of the spirit, and you are loved because of the father. The kingdom of chaos is receding. The king is with us. The new kingdom is rising. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming and living and loving and teaching, ultimately dying and being raised and ascending to heaven where now it says you stand at the right hand of God and you are fighting for us, praying for us, cheering us on. And you've left us with the spirit who lives inside of us to empower us to live out your teachings and to share with other people about what it means to be a student of Jesus. Lord, we ask that we will sense the presence of the Spirit and of the Son and the Father this week. That these just won't be like concepts that we say, yeah, that sounds good. I think that might be true. Like that makes sense logically. May, Lord, we have an experience with your presence this week. May we know that you are with us and for us. May we sense you whispering over us. Whether we don't even believe you exist, you still love us.